It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Edward Nevromont. <laughs> I put a little French twist on that, sorry. He's a speaker, an author, a consultant with a long track record of success at companies like P&G, McKinsey, Expedia, and, and my favorite, actually, Concord Confections, because they were the makers of Double Bubble Bubble Gum. So, Edward, welcome to Accelerate. Great. Thanks to be here. So, did you get a lot of free samples when you worked at, at Concord Confections? <laughs> I, I did. We had a the candy factory and the uh, the head office were attached in the same building. So, if you ever wanted free gum, you could walk into the factory and pick free gum right off the line. So, we so had a. What does a bubblegum factory smell like? It smells an awful lot like bubblegum. <laughs> the the the, uh, the first day I walked in for the interview, uh, I walked into the building and it was just an overwhelming. St- powerful smell of bubble gum. And my first thought was, I don't think I can work here. I don't think I could work all day long with this powerful, powerful smell. Uh, but what was interesting is uh, after working there for, for, for a few months, the smell just went away. And it wasn't that the smell went away. It was that your body just became used to the smell that you didn't even register when you walked in the front door that the smell was there. I think our bodies just are so prepared to measure or to be, uh, to recognize unusual things or unusual <laughs> smells that we don't normally associate with it, it just immediately put that smell into the background and it was totally fine. But when, when I went in for that interview, it just, it was overpowering. Yeah. It's funny how you get used to things. I, I remember early in my sales career, I was cold calling on some businesses in this industrial park and I walked in the door of this one company. I wasn't marked up front what they did. It was sort of a generic name. And you walked in the door, it just about knocked me to my knees, how horrible it smelled. And they were making dog food, dried dog food which I don't know what goes into it, but, and I was thinking I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And yet, you know, there are hundreds of people working there perfectly content. Yeah. And, and not just content, they just, it goes away. It, it was amazing away, yeah. to me. It just, it, it went away like that you wouldn't smell it at all. All right. So um, let's jump into it. Take a minute, maybe introduce yourself and maybe tell us how you got your start in sales and marketing and so on. Uh, Yes, yeah, so I, I kind of I, I fell into it a little bit when I was uh, in college. I was uh, majoring in physics, not kind of not knowing what I was going to do with my life. And my uh, my housemate at the time was in commerce, and they invited him to uh, these corporate events where you'd they'd go and give you free food and free drinks. That was a very poor college student, and he yes. said, "Hey, you want to come with me and get some free food and drinks?" And I said, "Absolutely." And uh, during one of those sessions, it was uh, it was Procter and Gamble, and I uh, they they put on a very uh, tight show. And, uh, I said, Hey, I'm going to go work for these guys. And, and I did. So I spent, uh, three years at Procter and Gamble, another year at Concord Confections, went to business school, spent four years at McKinsey, helping out companies all around the world with a bit of operations and a lot of marketing. And, uh, and then, uh, then moved into the online digital space, uh, in 2009, I moved to Seattle, uh, and, um, led up uh, a bunch of marketing for Expedia, mm-hmm. uh, did that for a couple of years, uh, and then jumped to a smaller company called A Place for Mom that was a, a private equity-backed company that was trying to be the Expedia for senior housing. If Expedia helps you find uh, hotels um, for travelers, uh, A Place for Mom would help seniors find senior housing, assisted living or Alzheimer's care, usually for their parents. Uh, and so I spent five years turning them around, fi- fixing up their business, turning them around, growing them. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, 
it was it was it was it was a, it was a ton of fun. So, so far in my career, every job I've had has been my, my uh, the best job I've had. Uh, hopefully, I just keep that up. <laughs> so, what are you doing? You work for yourself now. Uh, I, I do. So I, I left a place for mom earlier this year, uh, and uh, we kind of successfully turned it around. And the, the work was done. Uh, and so since then, I've been uh, working on a book and doing a bunch of consulting, helping out a lot of Warburg Pincus, his company that owned a, pro, uh, a place for mom. And I've been helping out their other portfolio companies um, uh, a week here and a week there, sometimes more than one week. My travel schedule has gotten a lot worse for the last uh, <laughs> six, six months or so um, while I'm uh, uh, kind of figure out what I do with, with, with my next thing. And it's, it's been a, it's been, it's been a fun, fun six weeks, All right, so, so six months. You caught my eye. Cause some of the stuff you've written is, you know, I do a lot of research online. I'm looking for guests and so on. And I, and I came across some of your, your writing and it's like, okay, this is really interesting. Cause here's somebody that's, that's really a skeptic or a contrarian, if you will, about lots of the current sort of hot trends in marketing and sales. So how did this come about? So, so I, I come I come at marketing from a very data driven place, right? So again, I majored in physics in my undergrad. I double majored in finance and PhD quantitative level marketing in business school. I, I spent four years at McKinsey. McKinsey charges ridiculous rates to clients, and um, you 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 can't charge ridiculous rates and give you give your opinion. You need to have data to back it up. So I come from a very very data driven place, um, uh, and, and I think um, mar- mar- marketing is, is in that place right now, but it's in the early stages of that place. I think uh, in the 1970s, if you were in finance, you were a wheeler dealer. In the 80s, all of a sudden data came into finance and it totally changed how finance was done. Um, The same thing happened in medicine probably in the 1950s. Uh, Marketing is happening now. Um, uh, Up until the, the early 2000s, marketing was very much a qualitative profession. People uh, decided what colors were, were better based on the feelings. Um, uh, lots of like, I call it fake data was thrown behind it. Cause what would happen is that uh, the CFO would say, Hey, before you spend that budget, give me some numbers to back it up. And so we went out and did market research or we did um, uh, conjoint analysis, or we did um, any number of, uh, of these kind of analytical marketing things. And sometimes the math on those things was hard. But what wasn't true is that these things had any relation to impact. Nobody did the actual effort to say, hey, does, does, does segmentation work? Does conjoint actually predict anything? Does, does your business run better if you do these things? And um, uh, instead, it was kind of math for the sake of math um, so that you could Im- impress people internally with put, putting some numbers behind things so you can get approval for your big budgets. Okay. Um, and uh, um, uh I, I kind of bought into that a little bit because, hey, I, I'm a math guy. I love that stuff. But as I dug into it more and as I spent more time helping companies, I realized that where our gaps came from was far far less often it was a lack of math and f- far more often it was a lack of uh, a co- common sense and simple things. Um, uh, rather than focusing on the, the newest, hottest thing and the math behind it, the answer often was, Get some of your basics right that you're leaving on the table. Um, and I'm happy to spend the rest of this conversation talking about examples of that. Well, yeah, let, let's do it. I mean, I was going to run through some of the things that you've written about that I thought were really interesting sort of myths that that you take on. And so one, as you say, that, and you can bring up stories in the context, I guess, is one you say that good is better than excellent. So what were you talking about there? Was it specifically about marketing or it could be about you know sales, could be about anything? 
it's actually about all sorts of things. The pattern repeats itself many, many times, like many things in the world. Um, uh, and well, so saying that good is better than excellent is a, is a bit of a... Um, Oh, well, it's a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a marketing statement, right? <laughs> uh, yes, because uh, it's catchy, catchy, and so on. And and obviously, uh, better is better than not better, right? Like in everything. Um, but we don't actually have the choice between being good and excellent. We have the choice between trying to be good and trying to be excellent. And trying to be excellent is oftentimes uh, the worst, the, the not as good a choice as just trying to be good. Um, because what happens is is we can only do things that we. We can only do things, and we hope that those things lead to excellence, but oftentimes they don't, and we get caught in the spiral of um, the things that we can do to lead to good uh, are often very clear. The things that we can do to lead to excellence often often aren't, and so we try to do more of the things that lead to good, hoping that excellence comes, and it often doesn't, or we try to chase new fancy things, hoping that leads to excellence, and it often doesn't, and those that chasing of excellence often distracts us so that we all the stuff that we could do to lead to good, that we know what to do. Um, we don't do. And so you end up being in a worse place by trying to be excellent than just trying to be good. So, but <laughs> without being too redundant on the words here, so the road to excellence is not, it's, it's not uh, further down the path to being good. It's almost like a separate path you're talking about. Uh, oftentimes, and often it depends what you define as excellence. So if, if you're, if you're good, I'll give you an example. And so if you want to be, um, uh, professional tennis player, you have to be excellent, right? If you are the hundredth best tennis player on the planet, you have a really rough, difficult career. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you need to be the best of the best in order to be a successful tennis player. You, not, not just top 1%, top 0.0001% before you're really doing well and having a great career as, as a tennis player. So you can go across that route and try to become that 0.0001%. Um, but there's no path to get you there, right? Like there's a bunch of stuff you could, there's a bunch of stuff that you need to do in order to have a chance at doing that, but there's no guarantee that you're going to get there. And it's almost a guarantee that you won't, right? It's a bit like running mm-hmm. the lottery. Right. Um, uh, you could also spend try to 10,000 hours. Even if you spend 10,000, in fact, Malcolm Gladwell has come out to say something along the lines of uh, that uh, he was surprised that that meme came out of that book. He, uh, he was not expecting that. He, he's basically said, said, said that, hey, 10,000 hours is the minimum you need, but 10,000 hours doesn't guarantee anything. And well, he's totally right. He spawned a whole, um, whole other book with Jeffrey Colvin. So. That's right. Uh, and so, so um, uh, or, 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 for example, you could try to become a teacher. And so there you can put in tons and tons of hours and become like the best teacher on the planet. Um, but hey, the best top 1% teacher makes basically the same living as the an, an average teacher or even a terrible teacher, um, the, the way that the union contracts are set up. But what if you did both? What if you became top 20% teacher in the country and a top 20% tennis player in the country? You combine those two things together, and now you could become a professional tennis coach and and, and your, your career could take off and you could be, you could be excellent as a tennis coach, even though you're only a top 10% teacher and a top 10, 10%, 20% tennis player. Um, and so sometimes by becoming, and, and by the way, both those things are things that any normal human can do. There's no reason why you can't put the effort in and become a top 20% teacher or a top 20% tennis player or both. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a path that's kind of almost a guaranteed success if you work that way versus the other two, uh, the path of becoming a, the a top tennis player in the world is, is a lottery, and the top path of becoming a top teacher in the world doesn't get you very far. Um, and so by coming, becoming good at a number of things, you're often better off than trying to become excellent at any given one thing. So as um, one of the Huxley, wasn't Aldous Huxley, but one of the <laughs> Huxley uh, brothers back in the London or England in the late 19th century said, you know, it's 
better to know something about everything and know everything about something. No, something about everything and everything about something, right? So, okay. So, um, this is sort of what you're talking about again, is you can, a path to greatness is really by avoiding excellence. Um, or, or avoiding chasing excellence, I would say. Right. I'll, I'll give you another. I'll give you a more concrete kind of business sales example. So this is a Fortune 500 a CMO came to me. Um, I, I, it was actually more than a CMO. He's running both sales and marketing, um, and he's for one of these big companies where it sells a big high price point product at the end of the funnel, and um, they need to do marketing in order to generate leads. It's common in a lot of businesses. They do mm-hmm. marketing to generate leads. They hand it off to the salespeople, and the salespeople then try to convert it into a sale. Um, and his question to me was, how do I integrate these two better so that when some, a salesperson is working with a customer and that customer comes back to my website and starts looking around at a certain product, that information can be fed to the salesperson so the salesperson can then have an intelligent conversation and reach out to that person proactively about the product they, they were looking at on the marketing website. He's like, I have a te- marketing technology, I have a sales technology, they don't talk very well effectively together. How, how, do, how do I make that happen? Um, and so I kind of paused for a minute and said, hey, that's, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a great thing to kind of shoot for. Um, but let me ask you a question. When marketing first hands those leads over to sales, how long does it take sales to call that customer back? And there was a hesitation, a pause on the other end of the line. And he said, I don't know. And so I said, hey, before, before you start trying to solve these intricate integrations between these two different uh, functions in your company and trying to find big data personalization opportunities, why don't you start by calling your customers back? And I can guarantee to you that if your callback time goes from days to seconds, um, your conversion rate to a sale will go up. Not just by a little bit, by a lot, yeah. by a lot. Um, speed wins. Uh, I've never seen a business where if your callback time goes from a day to 30 seconds, your business doesn't jump by at least 20%. Yeah, you, um, must, you must and, have read my first book called Zero Time Selling. That's exactly what it's about. Yeah, and it's, it's super clear. It's a super clear thing. It's obvious. It's not like super rocket science. But succeeding in that is, is not easy. Right? Now you're going to have to get the tracking set up. Your, call, your, your, your scheduling is probably wrong because people are kind of work, calling people back when they choose to rather than when they need to. You need to create performance standards. You probably need a centralized call center so that you can get those calls to seconds. And then once you have a centralized call center, um, you may need regionalized or specialist people to actually handle the calls. And so you need to have a handoff program now between your centralized call center and the person who's going to actually close the sale. And maybe you need to uh, triage the leads based on quality. So the best ones go to your best salespeople and the worst ones to your worst salespeople. All of a sudden you have all this work to do, but none of this work is like, is rocket science. It's all like blocking and tackling and what I call being good enough. Um, But the problem is, is that kind of stuff sounds a little boring compared to like, Big data personalization, uh, uh, having your uh, like marketing f- information fed dramatic dem- dynamically into your sales funnel to personalize the message and automate reach out and all these different other fancy things you could be doing. Um, those things matter. Maybe sometimes I'd want to A/B test them to see if they're, they're going to help or not. But definitely don't get distracted doing that when you haven't got your basics figured out yet. And most companies haven't. Right. And so I guess the point is, is I sort of have a pyramid I talk with companies about is there's three levels to the pyramid. The bottom is, is behaviors, the middle is habits, and the top is skills, is you need to focus on behaviors and habits. And if you do that, then you're more likely to generate the results you want than this focus specifically on excellence and skills. 
Sure, or, or, or processes, or, or whatever you want to call it. But f- figure out what the the basic drivers of success are, um, and they're usually fairly simple. Uh, and then go and do those. Um, uh, it's it's and, and don't get distracted. Uh, don't get distracted chasing excellence. Don't get distracted by the nearest. I'll give you another example. I was working for a company, and uh, they wanted to have more information about our customers. Everyone wants more information, um, and they thought, hey, we can go and append Targus's. You know, if I'm familiar with Targus, a company, they have a, a list of people across the country, and they can append data on everything from like whether they own a home and mm-hmm. whether they own a car and what magazines they subscribe to to your data sets. We can get more information about our customers. Um, I get this all the time. The company I was working for wanted to go and do it, and they wanted to pay the subscription to Targus because it was going to let us do all these amazing things. But my first question was, how are we treating our customers differently based on the data we have right now? And the answer was, we weren't. So you have some internal data. If you're not using that, what makes you think that getting more data is going to be helpful? We have this desire, or people have this desire to go and do things and to get more. Um, uh, and sometimes that feels like it's the right thing to do versus just the using what you already have and only after you've used what you're of your have and you've run out of like good enough things um would i challenge companies to go after things that are better than good enough um it, it doesn't happen very often uh, and even big companies so again i was at expedia and a big huge multi-billion dollar company that dominates the space they were in um when i got there they had an, uh, what they called uh the elite plus program so like they're the top customers at, at expedia um, and so if you were like top 1% of a user of Expedia, they'd put you into this elite plus program. Uh, if you remember the elite plus program, we sent you four emails a year telling you, you were a member of the elite plus program. And that was the extent of the benefits of being in the elite plus program. <laughs> and, and, and so, so before, again, one of the things they tasked me with is like personalization of the website. I'm like, hey, you know, before we start personalizing the website, why don't we, develop a, a benefit for the customers who are elite customers that we're telling them are so awesome. Um, uh, and again, I, again, it's not telling you to be um, amazing. It's telling you, hey, be good enough, provide a benefit. Um, and that turns out to be a lot of work. Like we ended up uh, visiting hotels across the, across the planet, trying to sign up independent hotels to upgrade to best available room, all of our elite customers. And we did it and we were successful, but it took years. Um, and only after all that work's done can we start talking about things like personalizing the website. Yeah, I mean, I think with that from a sales and marketing standpoint, or sales perspective and a purchasing perspective is, is you know, you talk about this good enough phenomenon and this, you know, a lot of this emanates from work that Herbert Simon did in research about people making decisions, satisficers, maximizers, and, and satisficers are people that make the good enough decision. I mean, that's that from a sales perspective, actually is, is sometimes the preferred outfit or preferred outcome. I mean, if you can be that uh, one that calls them back in three seconds, you capture their attention, you discover, you start building that rapport. If they're prepared to make that good enough decision, then they eliminate the incentive to go talk to your competitors. So the good, exactly. the good, enough, the good enough can become a great outcome for sales. It's, it's, it's good, good enough is often enough. Um, the, the only thing I'll say is good enough is often hard enough. It's hard enough to be good enough um, before you start trying to be better than good enough. Um, uh, get that first thing done. Um, uh, e- email, like another sales channel, it's a, it's a great example of this. So many companies I talk to want to talk about how they can personalize their email. Um, by, putting and, the, by putting the first name in? On a mail uh, Oh, yeah, you saw that. That came up. <laughs> Trump's email that came out yesterday. No, um, no, what uh, was that? Oh, oh, he sent an email out to a bunch of his uh, um, people who donated to him, um, and the, the 
the first line said first name comma we, we, we think you're a great person we want to get more money from you right. um, uh, that type of stuff happens all the time right like fix that stuff but but more importantly like uh, why do people open emails well because the email has good content for them either it's a great sales deal or it's fantastic information or it's super entertaining there's some reason to open it that has like that because the content in that email is good um, there are two ways to do that. One is you can personalize that message to make it like personal for that person. Um, or two is you can make good co- content that's real, that's good that a, a wide variety of people would v- like to open. Um, and this people think that the answer is personalization oftentimes, but if you want to make something personalized and you want to segment your customer list into two, you now need to, need to make twice as much good content because just because something's personalized doesn't mean it's good. Um, and so... Uh, the first step is making content that's good. And so many people skip that step and jump straight to like, how do we personalize this to make sure everyone's getting these unique emails? I say, well, stop, stop. Let's make one good email first. After you can make a good email that goes to your whole base, then we can talk about whether you can make two good emails that go to your whole base um, uh, that are personalized and trying to segment them all. But you've just taken your difficulty level up by four in order to split your base into two because um, you need to figure out you need to make twice as much good content and you need to figure out which piece of content goes to which person. Um, before you do all of that, why don't you start with making one piece of good content, which is where most companies fall down. I mean, again, so basic, but it makes so much sense is that, you know, master the basics. I mean, I focus on that and from the sales perspective, master the basic sales behaviors before you worry about, you know, some more advanced skill that you need to, to master or become excellent at. Yeah, and, and I'll throw one more in, which is that that we don't know what excellence is. Um, uh, uh, my, one of my favorite examples, and we'll leave business and, and, and marketing, and look at kickers in the NFL. And so, uh, how would you decide which kicker in the NFL today is the best kicker in the NFL? Give, give me give me your take on how you'd do that. Gosh, you would think uh, percentage percentage made, right? Successful sure. attempts, right? Sure. And then maybe you want to even add that based on some sort of difficulty factor because the guy who's kicking all his field goals at 20 yards is probably versus, not as good okay, versus the guy who's like 50. doing it at 60 yards. Right, right. right. So you, but you could do that, right? So you can add in a difficulty factor based on what they had to hit that year and then figure out um, who's been most successful last year at hitting those field goals. And the guy who was hitting it at the adjusted rate of 90% is probably going to be better than the guy who was hitting it at an adjusted rate of 40%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, turns out, so then. So then then what you'd say is, okay, if that was true, then if we took the guy who had hit 90% this year, we would assume that he's going to be better than average, better than the guy who's, and there's another guy who hit 50% this year, um, which guy's going to be better next year? Like, that's what we really care about, right? We, we, predicting past performance is one thing. We want to predict future performance. And uh, we assume the guy who was 90% last year is going to be better than, than the guy who hit 50% last year, next year. It turns out that's not true. It turns out that the... the there is zero correlation. Actually, there's a slight negative correlation from season to season in, in kicker performance. So the guy who hit 90% this year is actually likely to be slightly, slightly worse than the guy who hit 50% this year. Interesting. So what accounts for that? Uh, 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 no noise. Um, it's it's, it's uh, the, the number of data points that we have um, it, it aren't big enough for us to know which kicker this season is Next season is going to be good. Good. Um, what we do know, however, is that uh, if you or I were kickers in the NFL, we would be the worst kickers in the NFL. 
<laughs> I can guarantee that, right? <laughs> right. And, and not only would we be the worst kickers in the NFL, if they decided to keep us in for more than one season, we'd be the worst kickers in the NFL every season we were in there. We would be, our correlation would be extremely high from season to season in how bad our performance was. Um, uh, and so how, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you say, hey, our performance will be highly correlated, but the existing kickers are not, performance is not correlated at all from season to season. And the answer comes back to my good enough, is we are good enough at figuring out who is a good kicker. We can figure out who's good enough to be in the NFL. Um, but once that gets to that high level of ability of like people who are in the NFL, our ability to differentiate who the good kicker in the NFL is and the great kicker in the NFL is disappears. Our, our metrics no longer work. And it's not to say that, that we couldn't find other metrics. Like maybe the way, maybe you have to get them into like a, a sealed room and have them kick in isolation and so on and drop some other metric that, that predicts it. But the, the data that we have on just like performance kicking in the, in, on the field no longer correlates to, to actual performance. Our ability to predict good is there, but excellence goes away. And that pattern repeats itself again and again and again. So what about, so look at t- what about oh, sorry, sales? What about sales? I mean, the, the thing is, there's never really a level playing field because, you know, some people may have better territories or different accounts they work on and so on. But, I mean, how do you, how do you apply that same concept to, let's say, to sales? It's a good question. So I've, I have not found a good data set to do this on. Um, what you'll find oftentimes, at least the data sets that I have worked on in sales, is that performance does correlate among salespeople from, like, period to period. Um, uh, but not from year to year, or oh, from called whatever period you do, okay, from month okay. to month, or from right. year to year. Yeah, you, you do see correlation in sales performance from from group to group to group to group. Um, uh, uh, there's going to be tons of conf- confounding factors, right? Which makes it often makes it really difficult. Like, like if if one person is getting, uh, if if you have like uh, um, good people getting good leads, yeah, exactly. Or like by, re- by region, for example, like if your business has lots of penetration in Texas and poor penetration in New York and your people in salespeople in Texas are doing better than people in New York. Well, m- maybe it's because they're better salespeople. Or maybe it's because your penetration is better and you have more product to sell in, in Texas. Right. So, um, uh, you can try to pull those things out. Um, in general, what I've seen is most of the time performance of salespeople is correlated from season to season or from period to period or from year to year. Um, but but again, be, be, beware, especially as you get to the, the highest levels of performance. Um, oftentimes, the, the the things that get you to one stage don't keep keep going in in, in, in further stages. Um, and I, I could talk about that in a few other categories. I can't talk about it super intelligently in sales, just because I haven't seen a data set that I, that I love in sales to be able to, to to figure out where that good enough bar happens. Because the good enough bar happens at different times, in different places. And then the NFL, for example, like we're talking about the best of the best of the best before that bar happens. In in teaching, it happens much earlier. And so, if you look at tests in the United States that look at uh, the no- teacher's knowledge of mathematics, put the, call that on, on your x-axis from like terrible to, to fantastic mm-hmm. knowledge of mathematics. And then you look at student performance and how students they teach, how well they improve in mathematics, what they call it the annual improvement by having that teacher. Um, there's zero correlation. So the, the teachers that are the worst in knowledge of mathematics are no worse at teaching mathematics, and this is at the elementary school level, to than uh, um, teachers who are the best at mathematics. The driver of success is not knowledge, the driver of success must be something else, teaching ability, emotional connection with students, something else. Uh, and so basically, the teachers in the United States are good enough in math that 
paying a teacher more because they get a master's in math and they know math better is not a good driver of the success of the thing we care about, which is do kids under them learn math. That's not true internationally. So similar studies have been done in Peru and Indonesia, and their knowledge of math is highly correlated to how well their students learn math at the elementary level. And it's not too big a leap to guess why. And it's that the worst teachers in America are still good enough at math, whereas the worst teachers in Peru and Indonesia just aren't good enough yet in math. And so once again, the kind of the mm-hmm. bar kind of keeps going up and up and up until it hits this this kink. And when the kink happens, um, uh, the, the 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 metric you've been measuring doesn't correlate to the mes- met- met- uh, metric you care about anymore, um, and you need to find a new metric. Well, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that again. Since we have a sales largely sales audience, think about that in the sales context. Is that is yeah. Is, is how do we correct for the external factors that might influence the perception of good enough and excellence? Yeah, well, one of the things I find works really well in these situations is uh, is feedback cycles. The faster you can make your feedback cycle, uh, the, the better. And so, if you have an, if you're in a sales organization where calls come in and you sell on that that first phone call because um, you're selling some twelve ninety nine widget, and the goal is close the deal on that first call, you have a fairly fast feedback cycle. And you can figure out who your good salespeople are pretty quickly, and you can find out which techniques work better or worse, right? So we can run an A-B test for a day and say, hey, we're going to, um, I don't even know, just, uh, uh, start offering our product at $20.99 and then d- discount at $12.99 on that same phone call as a special deal, and we'll find whether or not we sell more mm-hmm. widgets that way, right? Like, right? And we can, after a couple of days of that, Maybe t- giving half the salespeople one technique and half the salespeople another technique, you'll find out which technique works better, and you can roll it out to everybody and keep going. Right? Um, it works great. But let's say you're a complex sale, a, a more complex sale that takes months um, to, to sell. Now, if you want to run, t- two things happen. Once, because these more complex sales tend to be bigger price points, you can have less sales per salesperson, and it's still like the economics still work, right? So. You have to sell a salesperson has to sell a lot of twelve ninety nine widgets to pay for themselves. Mm-hmm. They only have to sell like one hundred thousand dollar enterprise contract to pay for themselves every few months. And so, um, all of a sudden, the the N or the data you have to work with on those big enterprise sales gets a lot smaller. Um, and secondly, is that the feedback cycle time takes a lot longer. So now we want to test like, hey, what things can we do in that first phone call that drive success for sales? Well. We can do a bunch of tests on that first phone call, but now we need to wait three or four months to see whether or not those things turn into sales or not. And so instead of the feedback cycle being daily, the feedback cycle becomes monthly. Uh, and you need to wait, again, using that model, you need to wait years to find out whether or not uh, anything that you do is working. Um, so anything you can do to shrink that feedback cycle uh, is a big, big win. If you can fe- shrink that feedback cycle from months to to weeks uh, or from two months to one month you've just doubled your experiment your double the amount number of experiments you can run and if you can get that down to days even better and so a lot of what I'll do is figure out early predictors of success and things that you can pre- you can measure early on in the cycle um, on to met to predict whether or not that sale is going to happen mm-hmm. and maybe it's something like, like a demo for example um, maybe maybe you can't get a sale on the first call, but you can get a demo scheduled in the first call. And 
uh, historically 20% of demos turn into sales, uh, whatever the number happens to be. Mm -hmm. So now we can do a feedback cycle in the first call where we're not trying to make a sale. We're just trying to get a demo. And all of a sudden, our feedback cycle drops from months to to days. And we can run a bunch of tests in that same day on whether or not like different techniques on that first call drive us to getting a demo or not. Um, it's not perfect because oftentimes what you can do or one of the things that can happen is that you can uh, create techniques that get you demos that don't get you sales. For example, hey, we're going to run a, a promotion that if you get every person every person who signs up for a demo, we give them a free iPad. Well, you might get a lot more demos but maybe they're doing the demo to get the iPad and not mm-hmm. to, not to be interested in your product. So right. you have to be a little bit careful with these early stage metrics. Um, but as long as you're smart about it, shrinking that feedback cycle allows you to uh, um, to learn and reapply much much um, much quicker, much quicker. Yeah, and that's a lot of what you're seeing these days in sales. I mean, with specialized sales roles where there are teams of people are just making those first calls, trying to set up meetings for account executives or demos with account execs or sales engineers. Um, and it does providing, yeah, the technology increasingly is providing that type of, of feedback. So moving into the last segment of the show, and uh, I got some standard questions I ask all my guests at this point. And the first one would be interesting for you, Edward. So in this first question, it's a hypothetical scenario. You've just been hired as new VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. And CEO, board, anxious to get things back on track. So what two things could you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? So the first thing you need to do is, is is build your sales and marketing funnel. So you need to know where your leads are coming in from, what channel they're coming from, and you need to track those channel those leads through your entire funnel through to revenue. Uh, and you need to do that in two different ways. You need to do it one with which is I call it your activity view. So in the month of July, uh, how many leads do we get from each marketing channel? Um, how many of those leads turned into call them marketing qualified leads, how many turned into sales qualified leads, how many of those sales qualified leads uh, turned into, say, demos, how many of those demos became high-profile opportunities, and how many of those high-profile opportunities turned into sales, how many of those sales end up getting billed, how much revenue do we collect? Um, And once you get that basic uh, funnel information collected, uh, you can usually diagnose where problems are or where opportunities are. And so you'll find, hey, this marketing channel, we are, oh, and how much you're spending on each of these different places, both in terms of marketing dollars and sales costs. Um, and uh, uh, you'll find out, hey, in this particular channel, we're spending a dollar to make $10. Um, is there an opportunity for us to spend a lot more? Meanwhile, somewhere else, we'll be spending a dollar to make 50 cents, and maybe it's a time to turn that off. Um, but getting that basic understanding is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then seeing across all those marketing funnels, where uh, marketing sales funnels, where things fall apart. And so where, in the, when you cut it these different ways, are, are, are leads falling out of the, um, are, are not, not progressing to the next stage. Um, and, and usually the ones where you see those big drop-offs are where, where there's opportunities. But until you have that, you're, 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 you're scrambling a little bit in the dark. Um, and again, most companies I've talked to don't have that that structure built out. Um, I've spent the last six months basically going and helping companies as varied as SaaS for small business mm-hmm. through to education companies through to um, um, uh, through to marketplaces, and all of them need this same thing. Okay, great answer. So uh, now some rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers if you wish, or elaborate. The first one is when you Edward are out selling your services. What's your most powerful sales attribute? 
Uh, I don't sell anything. (laughs) 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 I stopped selling a long time ago. Um, I, I, uh, uh, I, I try to, um, uh, share and give away as much of my knowledge as possible. And, um, uh, if someone, uh, after finding out or hearing about that decides they, uh, they want to pay me for uh, more engagement. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation, but I, 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 I don't think I sell anymore. No, that's how you sell. Perfect. Um, so what's one book you'd recommend that every salesperson read? Um, so there's lots of, I, I read a book a week. There's so many opportunities, but I'll try to find one that's a little, uh, I'll give you two. They're, two. they're a little both off the little beaten path that probably people haven't heard of. One is uh, by Duncan Watts called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. <laughs> Love that. And, and f- f- fascinating book that basically says our ability to predict the future is much worse than we think. Um, and our ability to predict the, fa- the, the past, we pretend we, predict, we, we were much better than we actually were. Uh, it's kind of like a thinking man's tipping point, I call mm-hmm. it. Um, and then the second is um, a book by Byron Sharp called How Brands Grow. Uh, and I think it's the best, uh, the best book out there for, for understanding what marketing, how marketing actually works versus the, um, the, the BS that you're often fed. Excellent. Okay. Uh, so last question for you, what, what music's on your playlist? Uh, Alexander Hamilton, the musical. Ah, it's, about the, s- it's about the only thing I listen to these days. <laughs> have you seen it? I, I have, I, I, uh, I actually wrote a blog post about how I managed to get, uh, uh, center theater 10th row tickets uh, for 400 bucks just before uh, Lynn left the show. Oh, excellent. And how'd you do that? Uh, uh, well, you should read the blog post. It was, it was a quite an adventure, but uh, it involved um, uh, traveling to New York and talking to people in the, uh, uh, the cancellation line um, and convincing somebody to uh, only be their, uh, their, their, their guest. Um, but, uh, it was definitely, it was definitely, definitely an adventure. I went through like four or five false starts before I found a successful uh, solution, um, and, and it was definitely worth it. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen it as well. I'm at, or you could do the lottery. So the lottery works great, except you have to. There's, there's no guarantee with the lottery unless you get really lucky. Yeah, and it helps to be living in New York City to do that. So, well, good. Well, Edward, thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, tell people how they can find out more about you. Uh, I have, a, I have, I have. Two, two websites, one that I've kept recently updated and one that has a lot of archived information. But uh, begoodenough.com is uh, my current site. And I have an earlier site that has a bunch of archived stuff called uh, marketingiseasy.com. Got it. Well, great. Well, thanks for being on the show. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. An easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, listening on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Edward Nevermont, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 